0: Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 this morning. Continuation in our study on the book of Thessalonians that we started a few Sunday nights ago. Verse 13, the Word of God says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth the Word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffer the same things from your your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they do not please God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles, that they may be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Let's ask God's help as we look at his word this morning. Jesus, again, we are so thankful for the preparation that has gone into our time of worship this morning, leading us to think scriptural thoughts about what Christ has done for us, about the sacrifice that he made on the cross for our sin. Lord, as it leads into our time in your word, we pray that our hearts are truly open and receptive to the Word of God this morning. God, I pray that you would help us in this time to look at your Word accurately so that we can learn to apply it appropriately. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Following others is not a foreign concept to us today, is it? We follow people who have similar interests to what we have. We follow people because... We might like to see the things that they've accomplished or we're we're impressed by the things that they've accomplished and we want to see more of it. Social media even uses the same terminology for populating your scrolling feed. You can follow and unfollow people depending on what you want to see or how much they post and how much you don't like to see their posts. But have you ever stopped to think about why you follow some of the people that you follow? Maybe it's a boss. You know, there's just something about the way in which they control the room when they walk in that commands respect. Maybe it's in the way that they carry themselves or even how they interact with others that draws your attention to say, I want to be like that individual. Most of the time, there are intentional reasons for why we follow or even imitate others. There is something that is worth imitating. Dads, you have probably experienced this with your own kids. Your mannerisms, your occupation, your hobbies, your words, and even your actions are often replayed to you back by them, more so when they're toddlers than when they're teenagers. I can remember, you know, at times with my own youngest, my younger kids, even Eliana at this time still loves to emulate and imitate some of the things that we do, that I do. Wear my clothes, wear my shoes, walk around the house saying, she's Pastor Jason. The real question is, would we like the picture or do we like the picture they display of us as their real image of us. We kind of think of it as a lighthearted thing. When they do it, it's cute, it's picture worthy, it's memory worthy, but it's oftentimes honest because they're emulating what they have seen from you. And would we want others to see that same image displayed if they were watching that slideshow where that image fold out that we just got to see. If we have placed our faith and trust in Christ, we are called to be imitators. The word Christian gives that same idea in its very definition of little Christ. Paul uses imitation language throughout many of his epistles. And even here in 1 Thessalonians, uses it twice as a point of emphasis of what the the Thessalonians are to be doing. And in in active capacity to what we as Christians must be doing. The question I have for us this morning is what makes for a disciple worthy of imitating. A disciple worthy of imitating must be word driven as we're going to look at our text this morning. We're going to see that if we are to be effective disciple making disciples, we must be word driven. Paul once again shows his heart of constant communion with the Lord. When you look at verse 13, he begins the phrase, for this reason, normally we would think of a therefore, we would see what the therefore is there for in the context of this, but Paul's actually looking ahead when he says, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. He shows his heart of constant communion with the Lord as he begins this passage in this phrase. It is seen in his heart of thanksgiving. This isn't the first time in this letter where Paul begins in his prayer back of the Thessalonians with we thank God. It's the first element of his prayer. Oftentimes, our prayers are focused in on what we need or what we wish others would have to do around us, but Paul doesn't focus in on the needs of the Thessalonians. He's not focusing on the desires of how he wants to see them change. He's focused on the thankfulness of what God is doing, God is currently doing and actively doing in their hearts, and the tense in which he gives it here is an active component, meaning he continuously does it. Folks, I can only reiterate that a contented Christian life only happens when we're thankful and show a heart of gratitude for the things that God is doing in our heart and in our life and it gets experienced and mentioned with our tongue. When situations don't go the way we do, do we first complain? Or do we look to be thankful for what God is still allowing to happen in our life? Not only does Paul demonstrate a heart that is in communion with the Lord, but he includes his, home, his, his entire team that is with him. Paul is not assuming that because he is traveling with a team that they are actively imitating him. This isn't an assumption that because you're part of the team that I'm I'm just watching carefully and this is as a team collectively. No, when you look at the first 12 verses of this chapter, you see that Paul intimately wanted to make sure that he was actively modeling what discipleship looks like. He emulated a life that sought the glory of God over anything else. And the seeking of God's glory then carried out into the lives of those who were with him. Whether they were preaching alongside or they were here in the church of Thessalonica. The evidence of this practice of discipleship is seen in how the Thessalonians have responded to the message of the gospel and therefore becomes the reason for his prayer of constant thanksgiving. As he begins this passage of thanksgiving here, of what he's thankful for, we're going to see some things, two points this morning that I want us to look at as it relates to his thankfulness for what God is doing, to be an effective disciple-making disciple, it's going to involve the giving and receiving of God's word. Look at verse 13 with me. Number one, he says again, for this reason we also thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it. Not as words as the Word of men, but as it is in truth, and the bookend here, the Word of God. Effective discipleship involves the giving and receiving of God's word by starting with a willingness to hear it. He states this here, when you, you receive the Word of God which you heard from us, it implies that the word must be stated. It must be preached. As a part of the college and the seminary, as a part of our ministry, we really desire that uh, Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 2 would be the focal point to, to train faithful disciples who will then commit themselves to train others also. But folks, sometimes we think the ministry of discipleship is those for in pastoral occupation. Thessalonica is going to tell us it's not. It's for every believer. For every person who has placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, this becomes your ministry. So this ministry is not just from the pulpit. This preached word is not just from the pulpit. While well, that is necessary and helpful. It's not just a weekly Bible study or our care group lessons, which are essential for our own personal growth and fellowship with Christ. We need them. Every disciple is called into a ministry of proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Meaning because what Christ has done in me and the transformation that I've seen in my own heart because of Christ, it motivates me to push or to, to, to proclaim the message of Christ so others can also be changed. We oftentimes use the phrase, well, I'm trying to build relationships with others with the intention of giving the gospel. But if we're honest with each other, that building of the relationship never seems to get to that point of where we actually open our mouth, does it? We're fearful of losing that relationship that we work so hard at building. We're fearful of what they might do or what they might say or that they might actually reject us. And if the rejection comes, well, that's awkward. When Paul states here, they received the word which they heard, he's implying it's not my job. To make sure that they're willing to receive the word, it's my job to proclaim it faithfully. And as I build those relationships with the intention of giving the gospel, at some point I have to have a conversation. There has to be a vocal aspect to my life and to my words. Not only do they have a willingness to hear it, but the word is preached, the word must be seen. In essence, our word must be backed up by our lifestyle. I can't act like the world at work and expect my coworkers to want Jesus. I can't use the same language as my coworkers and expect them to want Jesus. I can't cut corners in my workplace and expect my coworkers to want Jesus. I can't contribute to the office gossip and expect my coworkers to to want Jesus. We don't want to be left out. We want to be accepted and considered as a part of the in. but at what cost? We might casually throw in our conversation that I'm a Christian, but the reality is sometimes we leave it in a vague sense that anybody can define that how they want to. I was just talking with an individual, a friend of mine, who in his workplace was talking about how he and another person in his his workplace are both Christians and yet they live separate lives and how it's impacting the community in which they have. Folks, the desire to be fitting in comes at a great cost when it turns people away from the message of the gospel. And they look at your life and they think, wow, you're really no different than I am. Why would I want Jesus? That's good for you on Sunday, but come Monday, you're no different than I am. Not only a willingness to hear it, Paul gives a willing in verse 13 here, a willingness to embrace the word of God. When you heard the word of God, you received it. He gives a couple of issues, a couple of points here that are important for us to see, that he doesn't say you embraced it just as we said it, not as men's counsel. I think it gives an implication of of a few things here, that we're not seeking a message that appeals just to our ears. playing baseball with our, with our boys. I had the opportunity over the years, we've, we've had several different boys on our team and met several different families in the Chandler community. And I was interacting with a, with a fellow the other day and I asked him about the church he was going to and what he was doing. He said, you know, we don't really want to go there anymore because I'm so tired of hearing about the, the, the modern day gossip, as it were, to, to appeal to my ears as to how I ought to fit into the culture and, and, and welcome the culture for it to change others. I don't want to be a woke Christian is the word he used. And I said, well, find a church that preaches the word of God. You're welcome to come here. Just saying. (laughs) Nor are we looking for a message that comes with great inspiration you walk out of here greatly inspired, motivated emotionally, and yet by Monday morning that short-lived joy is gone. Nothing by which, by meat to, to hang your, wor- your the fruit of your life on. And last but not least, I think sometimes in this aspect of looking at not men's counsel is where most of us would get caught up. We're not looking for a message that will cast the least amount of judgment. We are looking, essentially, for a message that casts the least amount of judgment. (laughs) I came to church to be encouraged not to have my toes stepped on. Folks, can I tell you, when you are willing to embrace the whole counsel of the Word of God, you will find at times your toes get stepped on. Can I tell you, though, that this isn't in the preaching of God's Word at all, always. This isn't just done when we're preaching from the pulpit or in your Sunday school lesson or even in your care group lessons or your time together. This is done sometimes even in the quiet time with our, our own devotional life with the Word of God, that when I'm seeking the Word of God to be transformational in my life, sometimes God uses that time and that quiet time to step on my toes. But oftentimes it's in the proclaimed message that we get upset with the preacher. Why would you touch that area? I'm just trying to preach the word. Heed what it says. Do what it's saying. But on the other side of that, you know what? Sometimes when you embrace the whole counsel of the word of God, you will find some sweet, sweet times of fellowship. With the Lord. You will walk away from your quiet time with the Lord saying, Wow, I wish I didn't have to go to work today. I wish I didn't have a chore list to do and accomplish. I wish I didn't have an you fill in the blank because I just want that sweet communion with the Lord. It has been so sweet. He said, I'm not just looking for the philosophies of the day to be appealing, not just looking for something intellectual that grabs my attention. Their willingness to embrace it was not as men's counsel, but they received it as it is, the word of truth, the word of God. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, is a good reminder of that that I would encourage you to go and look at again and remind yourself. But it gives us some things about the word of God in and of itself that tells us the truth of its word, that It's authoritative. The Word of God, because the Bible comes from God, it holds the highest and final authority of how we must live. It becomes our sole source of faith and practice. It's personal. Have you ever looked at the Word of God as just a personal letter to you? God writing with you in mind? Wanting to unload the deepest secrets of his heart to you? Giving you some of the sweetest honey that you could possibly ever crave and walk away satisfied? The Bible teaches what God wants us to believe about him and how he wants us to behave before him. It does imply that there are things that we're going to have to do, commands that are going to have to be obeyed. But it also implies there's promises of who God is that help us in our personal time and our walk with him that encourage us to cling to him when times don't seem to, to give that evidence of him at work. God has given us his words so that we can have a personal relationship with him. not only is it personal it's conversational I think sometimes we read the Word of God I'm just being honest sometimes even my own approach I read the Word of God like it's a dictionary I don't just pick up a dictionary to start reading through it do you? I did have a college roommate one time the first night we were there come in after our room devotions I come in and he's reading the dictionary And I thought, well, maybe he's just like, you know, maybe our our dorm soup had said something in our devotions that caught his attention. I was like, hey, so what are you looking up? And he's like, I'm just reading. What? Who are you? I felt bad because he never did it again after that. (laughs) At least least when I was in the room. (laughs) But sometimes we approach the word of God in the same way, don't we? It's dry, just has a lot of terms that I need to memorize, things that I need to learn about, you know, some truths and and realistically commands that I must obey. Becomes a rule book, as it were. How many times have you opened up the book of Psalms just to see David having a conversation with the Lord? Pleading with the Lord, giving his heart to the Lord. God's word is a way of conversing with us. It is how we begin to know and understand him. God wants us to love the Bible so much that we are eager to trust and obey it. Not because we're seeking a legalistic aspect of rules, but because we want to please the one who wrote it. We want to give our heart over to the one who wrote it. Not only do we find it conversational, personal, and authoritative, we find it sufficient. Approaching the Word of God with the belief that it really does hold the answer to every question in my life. It may not be an explicit answer for the thing that I'm looking for, but the principles found through scripture give us sufficiency or give us the confidence to know that God is sufficient in the answer that I need. His word will give me all that I need for life and godliness. So when I lose a loved one unexpectedly, I can find some truths in God's word that his, that scripture is sufficient. When you have made final financial decisions that would better help the family and then lose your job. When a diagnosis of sickness is given by a doctor and we're fearful of the journey ahead, can I ask a question? Can you find that scripture is sufficient? Or even when the chaos of our society seems to reveal that God is nowhere to be seen? Is your trust in the word of God and who God is enough to say that you find scripture is sufficient? We oftentimes ask, where can I find God's answer for this specific question in my life? And realistically, yeah, we're not gonna find some explicit answer to something that's modern in our culture today, but we can find... (laughs) truths about who our God is and and practical philosophical things that help us understand the, the character of God and how that transforms our heart and life to then say here's how I ought to live in light of that. I can cling to the faithful promise of God that he will never leave me nor forsake me when I don't know what the future holds. I can cling to the promise of God that his, his way is best, his plan is perfect. His love is all-encompassing when that loved one passes away unexpectedly and I don't know what to do. And the pain is deep. And I don't know where to go from here. They had a willingness to embrace The word of God, not as men's counsel. They received it as the truth that it is. It's God's word. And they received it thirdly here in the first 13, 14. It's transforming power. Look at what he says here at the end of verse 13. You welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. The word of God is not a series of philosophical chats, but a message through which the king himself changes lives. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that it's living, powerful, and able to discern. Romans 10.17 tells us that it produces faith. Romans 1.16 and 17 tells us the word of God has the power to save. 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23 tells us the word of God has, causes one to be born again. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 is the key to spiritual growth. John 17, 17 gives us the hope and the, present, the promise of, to possess power to sanctify or set us apart for the glory of God in our growth with Christ. 1 John chapter 2, verse 14 helps us to overcome Satan. Psalm 119:9 The word of God reminds us that it protects us from sin. It's transformational. It is necessary for salvation and it remains necessary through our growth in Christ in which the way that Paul is writing this also effectively works. Didn't just work one time in your life, it will continually work. What I love about the reality of God's Word is that no matter how many times I've read a story, no matter how many times I've quoted a passage, no matter how many times I'm familiar with a text, the Spirit of God oftentimes gives me something else to learn about God. How great are the riches of his glory that we can learn and grow maybe you're asking the question this morning how do I develop a better habit of reading God's word we talk about having a devotional life or quiet time with the Lord and I think if we're honest that's probably the greatest struggle most of us Christians have is how do I consistently do that I think that's a great question And I think sometimes we're afraid to ask the question because we feel that we're the only one with that issue. Have you ever felt that way? I don't want to ask that question because I know, like, I mean, everybody else seems to have it all together around me. What if I'm the only one struggling with this? I can highly doubt it. They must have a good devotional life with the Lord because their life seems together. Oh, folks, don't be afraid to ask. You don't have to just come to a pastor to ask how we could how we do it. Ask a friend. Ask somebody who you look up to and imitate. Say, "Hey, what is it that you do to have a consistent quiet time with the Lord?" And you know what? By asking that question, they might be honest with you in the same way and say, "You know what? I really struggle with that." And you know what you could do at that time? Hey, I'm struggling too. Let's do this together. Let's work together in growing in our fellowship with Christ. That's discipleship, folks. Maybe you're just scared to ask. I'm going to put a plug in here just for a moment. We have a, a specific summer growth series class on this topic. It is listed in the, in the bulletin as, as for kids, but I can tell you that if it's for good enough for kids, it's good enough for you. Pastor Brian will be teaching a class on that. How do we make Bible reading fun and enjoyable for kids? To develop a consistent habit of quiet time with the Lord. Right here in the chapel. Let me encourage you. You could, you could bombard his whole class and the rest of us would be happy not to teach. Well, I can't speak for Pastor Dave. I know he's really excited about his hymn history class. Right? So he might get two. Pastor Brian might have to pack out the chapel. Oh, but let me encourage you. If that's what you struggle with, seek help. Seek some answers. Find somebody to come alongside. Because the reality is this. Most evangelical Christians do not deny the inerrancy of God's word. They deny its relevancy into their everyday life. meaning we read the word of God and we think, well, this is good enough for so-and-so. Oh, man, I wish so-and-so was reading this right now because this would hit them right between the eyes. This would step on their toes. No. It's relevant for you today. Right now. Where do you turn in extreme circumstances? Do you embrace God's word? Do you find it sufficient? Do you struggle to do what it says? When is the last time the word of God worked in your heart in the same fashion it did in the Thessalonians? Nehemiah chapter 8 is a good Old Testament illustration here that gives practical application when, peop- when God's people open their hearts to receive the word of God. The Israelites were able to gather to hear God's word publicly for the first time in 70 years. They heard it read and explained and then applied. They responded in worship, repentance, and joy. Folks, when the word of God is opened, it demands a response. Similarly, the Thessalonians Thessalonians demonstrated evidence of that same God working in them as they continued to gather to hear the word. Their lives would be changed as they embraced it. This leads us now to our second point. We will see in verses 14 to 16 that effective discipleship involves intentionally living the word of God. We're not preaching anything new today. Just a good reminder Paul gives here in a list of things, he said, "You be, brethren, you became imitators. He doesn't even just say of himself, which he does in, first, in chapter one, you became followers of us. Now he's saying you became imitators of those who have gone before you, knowing that there's going to be a cost of that imitation. If we're going to be effective in discipleship, it's going to involve intentionally living the word of God. Which means we have to become imitators of those who received the word and are outwardly living it. The Thessalonians became imitators by letting the word of God work in their hearts and their lives. There was no question that these believers now belonged to Christ, they were partaking in the same sufferings that Paul, the Judean churches, Jesus, and other prophets had. Yet the suffering was not the focal point of their life. Folks, sometimes that's what we fear the most. If I share Jesus, I'm going to get made fun of. I'm going to be mocked and ridiculed. I'm going to be ostracized or pushed away. We don't have persecution in our our society the way that others around the world might. But yet it's probably one of the greatest fears that we have when it comes to sharing the gospel with others around us. Their desire was to continuously be transformed through the power of God's word. They had experienced the evidence of that change. They had experienced the results of joy because of that change, and others were taking notice. Paul wasn't even in town at the time to be able to to be able to encourage this as he's writing this letter, he was there for just a short period of time, maybe 3 to 4 weeks as he established the church before running, being run out of town. And yet, about 18 months later when he's writing this letter, the word had come back to him here's what the Thessalonians are doing. Here's how they're faithfully living out the word of God. Here's how the proclamation of God's word is going forth. And yet, in the midst of that, they're, they're holding on to the truth of God's word as the word of God, no matter what the circumstances around them are dictating for them to do. Most of them have lost Everything. In giving their lives to Christ, being forsaken by family, losing their jobs, their, their their place in society. Because the message of the cross was foolishness to those who would not receive it. The most loving thing we can do for another person is to hold fast to the word of God. Hold firm to the truth of God's word how do we do that Hebrews chapter 4 verse 2 tells us that we must receive the word of God with faith let's believe it God said it therefore it is James chapter 1 verse 21 tells us we must believe the word of God receive the word of God in humility God, I'm coming to you on my knees because I know I need to be transformed into the image of Christ. Would you do that work in my heart? James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25 tells us we must receive the word of God with an attitude to submit and do what it says. Not to be hearers of the word only, but doers. Psalm chapter 63, verse 3, tells us we must seek the word. The word of God must be sought after passionately. Eager. First John chapter two, verse fourteen, tells us the word of God must take up residence in our life. You say, Pastor Jason, well, I don't have anybody that I could imitate. I don't know of anybody that I really want to imitate. Then maybe you set the bar. You live a life that says, I want others to imitate me. I want Christ to be magnified in my choices. I want Christ to be magnified in my, in my workplace. I want Christ to be magnified in my words. When God is the focal point, and we're focused in on him, the tendency, the natural tendency, is that my care for others and what I think, what they think about me kind of goes out the window. So in essence, when I'm not part of the office gossip, I don't feel left out. I say it's because I know Christ would not be magnified by partaking in that, and I want that above all things. I want them to be able to ask, how come you don't do, how come you don't participate in this? How come you don't ever give in to this? How come you don't talk the way that I talk? How come you don't go to the places that I go to? And the opportunity says, well, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the one I live for rather than the one you're trying to please. We must become an imitator for others to receive the word that you are outwardly living. Paul lists the history of persecution that has come before them. A reminder is a thankfulness of what God is doing in their hearts that in the midst of that persecution, their eyes aren't focused on the persecution around them. Their eyes are focused on God and let him work in their hearts. They're not scared of what man's going to do to them. They're more scared, they're more fearful of, am I really living a life that doesn't please the Lord? That's what we want above all. Our eyes are often on the horizontal And it drives us to fear. God wants our eyes focused on Him because that is where we will find our peace. Our eyes focused on Him is where we will find our strength. Our eyes focused on Him is where we will find our passion for Him. Our eyes focused on Him is where we will find our stability. Our eyes focused on him is where we will find our hope and our joy. When my eyes are focused on him, I'm not worried about the next promotion. When my eyes are focused on him, my focal point is on how do I best please my boss. When my eyes are focused on him, leading my family becomes an easier task. Think of another Old Testament illustration here that ties in, I think, some of the reality of what this looks like. When you read through the story of Joseph Again, a story in my mind that is all too familiar with us. Many times we see the reality of what Joseph has gone through and yet you see the faithfulness of God displayed all throughout Joseph's life. If there's ever a story in Scripture other than the book of Job where you can look at an individual and say, man, he just went through some unfair circumstances. (laughs) Joseph is one we could highlight for sure. A boy that's a favorite to his dad to no fault of his own but because of who he was born to. Probably isn't seen in the same way as his brothers are or by his brothers for sure is not seen the same way by his brothers. Probably doesn't have to do the same chores, the same hard work that his brothers have to do or participate in the same way. Kind of gets it easy. And I can imagine that dad has to answer the question, how come Joseph doesn't have to do all the time? That's not fair. The result of that ends up leading him to be sold into slavery, taken to a place with new people, a new job to be treated in a way that none of us would want to be treated. And yet the first thing we see in Genesis chapter 39 in the display of Joseph's life as he's in Potiphar's house is that God was with Joseph and made all that he did to prosper. And the fascinating piece about that is when Potiphar looks at Joseph's life, he says, it says there of him that Joseph, or Potiphar recognized that God was with Joseph. And as a result of that determination in Joseph's life, it resulted in Potiphar giving over to Joseph everything that he had. At that time, Joseph could have said, well, this is unfair. God must not really be who he says he is. Gonna just spewy on you, God. I don't. I don't know why you're allowing this to happen in my life. And Joseph surely doesn't have the end of the story that we have. It's easy for us to read the the, the t- passages of Scripture from 37 to chapter 50 through the end of Genesis and see how the story unfolds. Joseph didn't get that view. He had the same view that we have today. Trust God today, because I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. Prioritize God today because I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. The prospering of Joseph in Potiphar's house was short-lived. He was accused of rape and thrown into prison. That alone is evidence of the sovereignty of God. The command, the, the, the crime that is accused of Joseph usually isn't thrown into prison in that way. It's usually death. And yet God had a greater plan for Joseph's life. I imagine, again, in the quietness of the jail in the prison there that he's at, maybe questioning, having some very honest conversation with the Lord. What in the world are you doing? I mean, you gave me some dreams that I interpreted to my brothers a long time ago. I don't see how those dreams are going to unfold in this situation right here. I mean, you can't get any lower than this. Probably some very honest, heart opening cries to the Lord. Scripture doesn't tell us that he does that. It does tell us, though, that again, the jail, the the one who ran the prison, the prison guard, recognized something in Joseph's life that said he was determined to follow after God, to give his life to God, to continually serving God, no matter what his circumstances dictated, that even in the midst of prison, he became a prominent leader. And in the midst of that, he saves a man's life, and he just kindly asks him, hey, maybe begs and pleads, I'm in here unjustly, would you help get me out? Talk to Pharaoh for me. And I can imagine the butler being grateful that he's going to have his job back because of the interpretation of the dream. Is like, yeah, Joseph, I'll do that, I'll do that, I'll do that. And yet in God's sovereignty and in his providence, makes it slip from the butler's mind until a year or two later Pharaoh has a dream and nobody can figure it out and all of a sudden God brings back to remembrance in that butler's mind. Oh, Joseph. I don't know, if I were Joseph and I saw that butler, I'd probably have a good slug. (laughs) If this is your idea of remembering me two years later, man, we we got some time issues here. But yet, Joseph needed to endure those circumstances to see the plan that God had unfolded for his life. Folks, we don't know what tomorrow brings, but we know we have the answers for today right here. So let me ask you, Tri-City Baptist Church, does your life demonstrate a passion to imitate Christ? Is the glory of God the priority in your workplace? When you're seeking to please God, you naturally please your boss. It may not always be the way he wants it, but I know I'm not going to compromise. Is the glory of God the priority in your home? where your children would want to imitate that? Is the glory of God the priority in your hobbies? Am I willing, if God took that away from me, to say, it's okay, God. I still have you. Have you been personally transformed by its message? Meaning, have you received Christ? You cannot embrace the word of God if you have not first embraced Christ. People who are born again and discipled and are actively being discipled not only hear the word of God, but embrace it. And this is seen in their lives on a daily basis. Who are you imitating? Do you have somebody in your life who you think that sets a testimony that says, you know, I really would like to be like him? Her testimony, man, reveals such a a passion for the Lord. I just want that same passion. What kind of life are you living that would be worthy of imitation? May God and his word be at the center of all that we do, all that we say, and all that we think, so that God is magnified. And his word can go forth with great power as it has in Thessalonica into our homes, our workplace, our neighborhoods, and our community. Let's be word-driven, disciple-making disciples. Let's pray together.